First of all, I would like to thank you for coming here tonight. It's uh, for the, uh, coming on the retreat. Uh, it means a lot to the priests when you do attend. We miss many people who could attend. And that's not my purpose here tonight to talk about them, but to thank you from the bottom of my heart from being here. Uh, I don't pretend to be able to feel Father Jenkins' footsteps or shoes, uh, but you know me and you know that I'm a size two compared to his 12. Therefore, if I mess up, it's no big deal. I'd like to talk to you in particular tonight about the abuse of God's mercy. There, are, most of my thoughts are taken from the saints. It's nothing original that I've given that I'll give to you tonight. Not much, anyway. There are two ways by which the devil endeavors to deceive men in their return to their eternal damnation after they have committed sin. He tempts them to despair, which is a sin, to lack confidence and trust in God's mercy. He tempts them to despair on account of the severity of divine justice. But before they have sinned, he encourages them to do so with the hope of obtaining that mercy, that divine mercy. So he gives them a false hope, and then once they've committed the sin, he tries to cause them to despair. After he effects the ruin of numerous souls as well by the second as by the first delusion, the despair as the false hope, God is merciful, says the obstinate sinner. But as the mother of God expressed it in her canticle, his mercy is for those who fear him. Okay, the sinner doesn't fear him. And the sinner uses the excuse of mercy so that he can justify his sin. Go ahead and do what he wants to do. Yes, the Lord deals mercifully with them that fear to offend him, but not so with the man who presumes upon the mercy of God to offend him. Okay, when we presume that God will be merciful, we'll go ahead and commit the sin. There's always confession next Saturday. That's not sorrow for sin. It is God who makes us sensible to his patience in bearing with us. Behold, we are the number of those who, presuming on God's goodness, have offended him again and again. God is merciful, but as you know, another attribute of God is his justice. God is also just. Sinners are desirous that he should be merciful only, without being just. It's impossible. It would be impossible for him to be God. Because were he only to forgive and never to chastise, he would be wanting in the attribute and virtue of justice. As Father Avila says, that patience on the part of God towards those who avail themselves of his compassion to offend him the more would not be compassion, but it would be a want of justice, a lack of justice. He is bound to chastise the ungrateful. He bears with them for a, a certain time, but there comes a time when he abandons the sinner. Yes, he does abandon the sinner. When, they, when he has counted their sins and they are found wanting, when he has shown mercy to all that he wants, or when there is no hope of the sinner converting to God. Such a punishment 
Our Lord has not yet condemned us. Sin has not yet overtaken us. Or else I would dwell in hell at this very moment in my obstinate sins. We, we do, you men do. You're some of the cream of the crop that we have. You do desire to amend your lives. If you do not, you are that obstinate sinner we're talking about. God, Scripture says God is not mocked, yet he would be mocked if the sinner would go on continually offending him and yet afterwards enjoy him in heaven. God then would be mocked. We read in sacred scripture, what a man sows, those things he shall reap. He who sows good works shall reap rewards. He who sows iniquities shall reap chastisements. The hope of those who commit sin, because God is forgiving, is an abomination in God's sight. Their hope, says Job, is an abomination. It's an affront to Almighty God. It's taunting him. And thus the sinner, by such hope, provokes God to chastise him the sooner, as the servant would provoke his master. So because his master was good, took advantage of his goodness to behave in a poor way, to behave in an ill way. Has such a fear been your conduct? Has it been our conduct before God? Because he was good, we made no account of his precepts. We must confess that we have done wickedly, and we must detest the, all the offenses we have committed against Almighty God. Some of you are of venerable age. You're in your 60s, maybe 70s. I buried a man today who was married for 64 years. It's a long time. And every day, he and his wife prayed the rosary together. That's why they're married for 64 years. That's why they had a beautiful union. And it was the very rosary that he got on his wedding day that he used every day for 64 years. What a wonderful tribute. I'd like for you to consider the emptiness and shortness of our human life. King David said that the happiness of this life is as a dream. The dream of one awakening from sleep as the dream of them that awake. All the greatness and glory of this world will appear no more when we awake from our dream to the poor worldling at the hour of his death. Then as a dream of one awakening from sleep who finds that in the dream they made a fortune. They got gathered all sorts of treasures. And when he woke up, he realized he doesn't have any treasures. When he woke up, the dream ended, and the treasures disappeared. Hence did one who was undeceived, wisely right, on a skull of a dead man, he who thinks undervalues all things. Yes, to him who thinks on death, all the goods of this life appear as they really are, vile and transitory. I knew a man whose house once burned down, and that man came to the realization that everything, and he used the word dross. Everything in it was dross. It was, it was nothing. Everything was nothing. 
he and his family managed to escape the fire without injury. That was the important thing to them. Nor can the man fix his affections upon the earth, who reflects that in a short time, and for some of us, it will be shorter than others. We have had retreatants here last year or the year before who are no longer with us. That in a short time we must leave this world. How often have you despised God's grace for the miserable goods of this world? How often have you chosen them, created treasures over the Creator? Henceforth, we must desire to think of nothing but the love of God and of serving God. It is then that the worldly grandeur and sovereign power must end. Such was the exclamation of St. Francis Borgia when he beheld the corpse of his aunt, I believe, the Empress Isabella, who died in the flower of her youth. Reflecting upon what he saw, the dead body there, beginning to corrupt and decay, he resolved to bid adieu, that means to God actually in French, but it's how the French say goodbye, adieu to the world, to God, to give himself entirely to God. He is quoted as having said when he saw her beautiful body corrupting, I will henceforth serve a master who will never forsake me. That's how we should be, my dear friends. Let us detach ourselves from the present goods before death tears away from us or tears us away from them. Detach yourself. You may have goods of this world. You need the rich as well as you need the poor. But you cannot be attached to the things of this world. It is a folly to expose oneself to the dangers of losing one's soul for the sake of attachment to the miserable things of the world for which we will soon have to depart. For soon it will be said to us by the minister of God, the priest, go forth, Christian soul, out of this world. That's one of the prayers when the priest anoints the person and says the prayers for the person in the last hours of life and their death. Go forth, Christian soul, out of this world. How many offenses have we been guilty of against God? We must ask God to teach us how to correct our disorderly lives, and we must be willing to do whatever it pleases. You men show great hope. You set aside the things of the world for two or three, four days to give your soul a break, a reflection of your vices and your virtues. Reflect that you cannot remain forever in the world. You must one day leave this country in which you now reside. You must one day leave that home in which you now dwell and return to it no more. Think that many before you, unless you built a new home, inhabited those same rooms in which you are now present living. 
They slept in those same bedrooms which you now sleep. Where are they now? They've gone into eternity. Pat Wolf, whom I buried today, has now seen the judgment of Almighty God. What a wonderful thing, what a terrible thing to behold the justice of God. Angry at our sins, the same will happen to you and to me, my dear friends. We must be sensible of the injustice we've been guilty of in turning our backs upon Almighty God, our sovereign good. We must ask God to grant us the sorrow to regret our sins and to regret our ingratitude to him. We should not live a moment longer ungrateful for the love which God has shown us. Love God above all things and desire to love him to the best of your power during the remainder of your life. Please consider the contempt with which the sinner treats God. God himself declares that the sinner treats him with contempt and God complains in these words. I have brought up my children. I have exalted them but they have despised me. It's a great cross to a parent when they feel that their children do not love them, do not respect them, do not honor or obey them. It's a great cross. It's a great cross to a priest when he feels that parishioners do the same. A daring sinner who has presumed to despise the infant majesty of God sins against Almighty God. But whilst thou, thou art infinite majesty, God is also infinite mercy. Love him now. Be sorry for him now for having offended him because now he is still our friend. Tomorrow he becomes our judge. We are poor helpless worms. Scripture, Christ says that of himself, ego sum vermis. I am but a worm, who have nothing but what God has given to us. God has given you your souls. God has given you your bodies. God has given you your minds, your reason, and numerous other benefits in this world. How have you made use of them? Have you used these things to offend him the more? Or have you used these things to love him as your benefactor? your greatest benefactor. How is it that God has so much patience with us? How many times have we laid down to rest under the displeasure of God? How many times have we turned out the lights at night, gone to bed with sin on our souls? There's another way of wording it. Will we awaken tomorrow? One of my great aunts, the sister of two nuns, the sister of a priest, she says she's going to lie down in her bed and she's going to die. And that's exactly what happened. We found her dead, not the next morning, but we found her dead uh, after she lay down one night. We found her dead the next day. We trust in God that he will enable us to change our lives. But we have to want to do that.
Let us not let not the sacred blood be lost, with which so much pain and sorrow Christ shed for our salvation. He has shown such regard for our souls, so as to shed his blood for the salvation of those souls. And we have so wretchedly allowed our souls to perish in sin for nothing, for maddening passion, for miserable gratification, for the contempt of God's grace and God's love, for nothing have we destroyed our souls in sin. If faith did not assure us that God has promised pardon for those who repent, we should not dare to implore his forgiveness. But I know that you are sorry for your sins. Kiss the sacred wounds for the love of those wounds beseech him to forget your injuries, injuries which you committed against him. He will forget. There is a parallel here. I was reviewing an exorcism in a book uh, to talk to the children about the devil. And it was uh, in Erbil, not over in the far east, but Erbil, I think, Iowa, where this exorcism took place. And the priest who did the exorcism, a venerable old priest, he demanded that anybody who assisted in the exorcism go to confession first. Because when, when one confesses their sins, the devil does not know them. The devil can... See, if, if people helped him, and this actually did happen, that helped him with the exorcism, the devil would start talking about their sins to everybody there to embarrass them, to get them to stop assisting in the exorcism. But if they went to confession, it doesn't matter what their sins were. The devil could not mention them and did not know them. It's, just, it's similar with Almighty God. When we confess our sins, he forgets them. When the sinner repents, God will forget all the sinner's ingratitude. Though we must be sorry for every evil, for having despised Almighty God, and we must ask him to pardon us. I want to touch on the pain of loss for a few moments. The greatest pain in hell is not fire, nor is it darkness, nor is it stench, nor is it the noise, that the ears hear, or anything else that the senses feel, <coughs> any of the material torments. It's not even despair, but the greatest pain in hell is pain of loss. The pain of having lost God, which of itself constitutes a hell. Just having knowing that you've lost God for, forever. The soul was created to be forever united with God and to enjoy the enrapturing countenance of Almighty God. God is our end, our last end. It's only good so that all the goods of the heaven and earth Without God, could not make the soul happy. Only God can make the soul happy. Sin does not, though we think it will. That's why we do it. Sin does not make it happy. 
It is that if the condemned soul in hell could possess and love God, hell with all of its torments, even the fires and things, would be a paradise if the soul could love and possess Almighty God. But this will be its sovereign punishment, the loss of God, which will render the soul forever inconceivably miserable to be deprived of God for all eternity without the least hope of ever again beholding God or loving God. Our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, was nailed to the cross for your sake. He is your hope. And it is your hope that you would rather die than offend Almighty God. The soul being created for God has an instinctive tendency to become united with, its, with God, its sovereign good. But being united with the body, when it wallows in iniquity, the soul becomes so darkened by the created objects, which allure the senses, that the soul loses its sight, so to speak, has so little knowledge of God and no longer desires to be united to Almighty God. That's what's wrong with the world today. We're blind because we're wallowing in sin. And because we're wallowing in sin and blind, we no longer desire God. The man out on the street doesn't give a consideration for his soul. But when separated from the body, from sensible objects, then the soul will know that God is the only good which can render it happy. Even somebody being sentenced to hell knows then that only God could have made him happy. Therefore, as soon as the soul shall have departed, it will feel itself drawn with the most powerful attraction to God. Even the soul that's condemned to hell will be drawn towards God, will not see God, but will be drawn towards God and then repulsed from Almighty God. But having left one's life an enemy of God, attraction towards a union with God, I'm sorry, the soul will be kept back from him, as I said, repulsed, as by a chain, and dragged into hell, there to be forever separated at a distance from Almighty God. It's one of the things that makes the movie Scrooge so wonderful. When Marley appears to Scrooge and has the chains, the baggage that he's carrying, and Scrooge makes comment of it, and Marley says, ah, this was seven years ago, and your chain was equally as long, but you've been working on it since, making it longer to pull him away from Almighty God. The wretched soul in that eternal dungeon will know how beautiful God is but will not be able to behold him. It will know how amiable God is, but it will not be able to love him. It will be the soul's hell of hells to know that it hates God, who is infinitely lovable and infinitely lovely. The soul will desire that were it possible to destroy God, to whom it is hateful, and to destroy itself, hating God. And this will be the eternal occupation of that unhappy soul. 
hating God and hating itself. Every morning it will wake, so to speak, hating itself. The torment will be immensely increased by the remembrance of the many graces that God has bestowed upon the soul even in hell and the love which he rendered towards the soul during its lifetime. One will especially call to mind the love of Jesus Christ in shedding his blood in laying down his life for our salvation. The ungrateful soul, not to forego its own miserable gratifications, consented to lose God during life. It's sovereign good. And the soul will find that no hope will be left of ever regaining God. If in hell I should not be able to love God, nor repent of my sins, but I have, but as I have it now in my power to repent and to love God, let us be sorry with our whole souls for having offended God and love him now above all things. You have it in your power now to do so. Remember continually that hell which I have deserved, that I may love God with still greater and greater fervor. Consider before hell the particular judgment. We read in scripture, I read it today at the funeral mass, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the, the judgment. It is a faith that immediately after death, we shall be judged. If you were to have a heart attack here and die here, you would be, all of the heavenly court would come here and judge you, and the satanic court as well. Wherever you die, that's where you will be judged, that very moment. And it is also a faith that upon the judgment, will depend our eternal salvation or perdition. Imagine yourself to be in the hour of agony and to have only a short time to live. Think that in a short time you will have to appear before our Lord Jesus Christ to give an account of your whole life. Father Jenkins, in his humility, says he's been boring you to death. We could spice that up by showing the judgment of your soul to everybody here. I'm sure everybody's eyes would then uh, open wide and be very surprised. Soon we will have to give an account of our whole life and how alarming this will be in this, with the sight of our sins. That every time I'm tempted to sin, I try to remind myself, everybody's going to see this sin sooner or later. Do I want that? Do I want my mom to see the sin? Do I want my dad or my brothers and sisters, the nuns, the priests, my name? Do I want you to see my sins? It's going to happen sooner or later. It's not going to be too pleasant either. We must ask pardon of our Lord before he judges us. I know that I have many times already deserved to be sentenced to eternal death. I desire not to present myself guilty before thee but a penitent to be pardoned at this time. <clears throat> oh God, what will be the anguish of the soul when it shall first behold our Lord as a judge 
and behold him terrible in his wrath. It will see what great mercies he has exercised towards the soul and what powerful means he has bestowed upon you to save your souls. Then will the soul also see the greatness of eternal goods and the soul will see the vileness of earthly pleasures which have brought many souls to ruin. It will then see all these things but to no purpose because there will be no more time to correct one's past errors. What shall have then been done with the irrevocable? But the judgment seat of God, there's no nobility before him. There's no dignity. There are no riches which will be considered. He will consider only your works and they will be weighed in the balance. You must ask the grace to weep during the remainder of your life over the evil which you have done, we have done. We have done in turning our backs upon God and to follow our own sinful inclinations. What contentment will the Christian enjoy at the hour of death? Who has left this world? Who has given himself to God? Who has denied his senses all unlawful gratification? And who, if he has on some occasion been wanting, has at last been wise enough afterwards to do penance for his sins. Maybe you have fallen, maybe you've fallen hard, but you are wise enough to do penance for your sins. On the other hand, what anguish will that Christian experience who has continuously relapsed into the same vices and at last finds himself at the point of death? It's not gonna be a lot of hope there either. Then will he explain, alas, in a few moments I must appear before Jesus as my judge. And I have not yet begun to change my life. That's what matters, dear men, change. That's what matters. We had a presidential candidate that said hope and change. That's all you had left in your pocket was change. But I'm speaking to you of a different type of change here. We have many times promised to change. We've done so in the confession. We've promised to change, but we haven't done it. And now, in a short time, what will become of me? Return thanks for the patience Christ has shown to you. Since Christ has thus waited to pardon you, do not reject him. Receive him, put yourself in his favor, through his own merits upon the cross. God love you and God bless you.